hey, the world has some things that are going wrong with it. Well, you know, I did feel like the purpose of this conversation to get us started was to open up a lot of doors. Yes. And I don't know if in our future efforts we will close any of them. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey, folks, welcome back, and big thanks for tuning in. Wow, it is hard to believe we've actually done a 100 of these things. I remember during the holidays last year, a colleague asked, will there be an episode this week? And my response was, well, does this week have a Tuesday? So yeah, 100 straight Tuesdays, and folks are still listening. More folks, actually, and we're pretty damn stoked about it. I'm so grateful to all of you who have supported this endeavor by listening, by suggesting guests, and by offering ideas on how to make the show better. People often ask me what the show's about. Well, we know it's about cool people doing awesome things, and we know it's about creativity and hustle. But we focus on those areas because I think they're areas of inquiry through which great learning can happen. I've learned something in each episode, and that's what makes this project so rewarding. So, with learning as our guide, today we are launching a new series here on A New Angle. We're bringing back guest number one, our favorite economist, Bryce Ward. Some of you might remember Bryce from our first episode in our conversation on the future of higher education. Others might not know Bryce. He's one of the most compelling thinkers I know, and every time I speak with him, I learn lots of things. We've bantered about loads of ideas and started tons of projects together. We've come up with even more ideas for new projects. But execution has been hard. We both have fairly consuming day jobs, not to mention high-energy families. So in the spirit of documenting the great conversations I regularly have with Bryce, I figured, why not do it on the pod? That captures our thinking and hopefully shares the learning with all of you. So what are we planning to talk about? Well, Bryce and I tend to have conversations that center around a broad and important theme. And that theme is this. There's lots going right in our society, but something is clearly wrong. What does that mean? Well, you'll have to keep listening to find out. This ongoing conversation will take many forms. We'll talk about economics, education, technology, health, media, happiness, and occasionally politics. We'll consider specific stories and broad cultural trends. We'll debate, and we'll learn, and hopefully you will too. So without any further ado, let's get into it with Bryce Ward, episode 100, coming up right now. Okay, so we're here today with Bryce Ward, episode 100. Bryce, you came back. I'm happy to be back, Justin. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. I mean, you were you were episode number one. I was episode number one, and the digs were very different. Yeah, I think we were in my office with uh, a cheap microphone that I stole out of a retiring colleague's office. Um, but we made something. Yeah. You know, clearly, you're still here. <laughs> and you have, like, a real studio and, like, a big logo and all sorts of good stuff. Yeah, yeah. This is actually feels like somewhat of a professional operation. I've gotten it to the point where now I am the weakest link, you know, and that's kind of a nice place to be. That's what they say, right? Isn't that what they teach in like business school and management is like, you're always supposed to be just getting everything better than you. And that way things turn out. Seth told me that one. Seth Bodnar, he said that uh, A's higher A pluses and B's higher C's. I don't know if that's a metaphor that fits here, but in any event, I've tried we'll to give you an A. I've tried to improve everything I can on the podcast, and it's easier to improve things like the studio and the microphones and the guests. Um, and I'm trying to work on improving myself. Well, I think you're doing a good job. So <laughs> thank you. 
Yeah, and you're one of our most loyal listeners as well, as it I, were. Oh, I don't know about that. I do listen. Uh, it's a nice little, you know, I like having you accompany me on the trails around our house. <laughs> our houses, I guess. There's a couple of uh, folks, including yourself, that I occasionally bump into running on Tuesday mornings. And I could see this like strange look in your face. Like, whoa, I see you, but you're actually talking to me in my in my ears as well. I'm listening to some conversation that you had a month ago. <laughs> but it sounds very fresh and entertaining to me. Yes, exactly. I've had that has happened, I think, at least three times yeah. that I have run into you. And it's like, oh hey, I'm listening to you right now. There we go. So, you know, as we kind of enter year three of the podcast, um, you know, this is episode one hundred, whatever kind of milestone that is. I mean, it makes me think about what we're trying to do with this endeavor in general is to, is, is to learn. I can learn from guests. Hopefully guests can learn from us. And every time I have a conversation with you, Bryce, I learn something. And the best conversations that we have are the ones where you know, I feel like there's a set of ideas or topics that are I'm kind of just mulling over. And, and I, I haven't quite organized my thoughts. And then I talk to you about it. And I feel like, okay, now now I'm more clear about that thing that I was really having a hard time getting clear about. Well, I hope that I bring that level of clarity. I'm sure that is not always the case, but I I will take the compliment and hopefully we will do something similar here today. Yeah, and so I think in general, our project here, and, and this is my sort of indirect way of, of suggesting to our audience that we're going to be having Bryce on the podcast once a month, once a month uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, hopefully you, you all like it and encourage us, and eventually it becomes a dialogue and people come in with questions. But the broad area of inquiry we want to think about is we tend to have these conversations about, you know, this this strange state we're in as, as a country, as a world, what, as a society. There's a lot that's going right, but a lot of us feel like something is, is wrong. And there's so many dimensions to that. And I know, I know you sort of have this sense of angst as well. Yes. Uh, I always try and find some positive news. Yeah. Right? You know, because it's like, look, there's lots going right in the world. Mm -hmm. And when I go look for it, it's really big stuff that's going right in the world. And yet I can't get away from this malaise I feel that things aren't quite right. And, you know, when you go and look for the data... In that realm, you can also find stuff that isn't quite right, that doesn't seem to be matching the it's all roses and rainbows story that, you know, it's you can tell. But you can also tell stories that it's all thunderstorms and rain. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's get some examples yeah. about what we mean here. When we say things are going right, we're talking about some broad economic measures. But we're also sort of, I mean, I guess before we get into that, like there also is sort of is this Steven Pinker kind of mindset of like, hey, look, this is the best time that humans have ever lived. Like we're the healthiest we've ever been and people aren't dying of the plague and, and you know, we're, we're not as violent as we were. Like there's some broad kind of humans have improved narrative. We're going to get a little bit more micro than that, but that's operating in this too. Yeah. No, I mean, so look, you can take the – global poverty view, the wars view, but, you know, even just at a more, let's just focus on the U.S. Mm -hmm. Real median household income was the highest it's ever been last year. Uh, Recessions are less frequent and less lengthy than they've been in our history. Uh, 
Crime is way down. Right. Particularly uh, violent crime, yeah. Leisure time is actually up. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the exception of something we'll get to in the next part, life expectancy. I mean, when my great-grandparents were born, life expectancy at birth in the United States was less than 50 years. Wow. Right? Wow. Now it's over 80. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's like basically 100 years. We've added an enormous amount to life expectancy. And even over the last, over my lifetime, we've added eight, nine years to life expectancy. Right. Uh, You know, so, you know, you kind of go through... There's lots of things that are going right. Um, you know, uh, people don't smoke as much. They don't drink and drive as much. Uh, you know, there's there's a there's a whole plethora of things that at the you know, in the last decade, 350 million people globally have been lifted out of poverty. Yeah, that's that's the entire population of the United States mm-hmm. that 10 years ago would have been living in at the global poverty line or below it, that are now above it. Yeah. Right? I mean, these are all very, very good things. Um, and, you know, I, I, I often have said, if you could choose a time and a place to be born, you would choose today, and you would choose the United States. But I'm a little bit hesitant to say that now than I was five years ago or even three years ago. And this is a deeper thing than just sort of being upset with the most recent election or something like this. I mean, we're going to try to actually for our first few episodes, we're going to stay away from politics in the sense that that's not what's driving this conversation. What is what are the things that sort of make you question that notion of right now in this country is the best place for any best place in time for anyone to have ever lived? Well, so when we again, when we dig into data. So in spite of all these good trends, if we look at so there's a thing called the general social survey. It's been going on for decades. Mm-hmm. And in there, they ask people, well, how happy are you? Or how, you know, there's a whole bunch of questions about satisfaction with life or satisfaction with finances, all these kinds of things. In spite of all the, whatever positive trends we've had in all those, you know, income and consumption and leisure time and crime and all those kinds of things, at best, it's flat. Mm. And if you really look at it, it's actually gotten worse. Right. So people today, a smaller share of Americans will say that they are very happy today than 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And that what's critical here is that these are self-report measures. That's these right. are people being asked, how do you feel? Are you better off or worse off than you were in the past? Well, that too. But I mean, right now we're just actually literally just saying right now, in the moment. Oh, okay. How right? happy are so you So how right happy now? are you, right? So in, say, 1976, when I was born, uh, like 35% of the country said they were very happy. Okay. Uh, in the most recent years, is more like 30. So, you know, that's not a huge change. But five out of every hundred people that you yeah. meet 40-some uh, years ago would have told you that they were very happy and now are telling you something that they're, they are less than that. Well, and within that, we've sort of always had this notion that each successive generation will have a greater chance at happiness, a greater chance at prosperity, and you know, whatever, the, the arc of justice or whatever, the arc of history bends towards justice and that things are generally improving. So something like that is is a red flag. Yeah, well, and, and that question as well is, again, that is that is a general social survey question. Right. Um, and somebody did something interesting just last week uh, looking at that by cohort. Okay. Uh, you know, and over time. And, you know, so there's this kind of notion that uh, things are much worse now and that millennials think things are much worse now. And it's actually us Gen Xers. Uh, who, 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 who 
have said, oh, yeah, we're worse off than our parents and we're less optimistic for our, our children than either the boomers or the millennials. Oh, everybody sucks. Uh, That's yeah. our view? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, I thought it was kind of, it was kind of an interesting little like counter narrative to, you know, some of what at least I hear a lot in terms of, oh, the millennials are getting hosed and the boomers screwed everybody. And Yeah, you know, we'll, we'll definitely uh, drill into the millennials thing. I mean, that was something we dug deep into with Ann Helen Peterson, who's yep. a local uh, writer for BuzzFeed that um, is working on a book in this space. Anyway, I don't want to get us distracted, but what were you getting after there, Bryce? But yes, but yeah, so, um, you know, the in addition to just this notion of happiness, um, the I think the scariest indicator is just that life expectancy stopped going up. Yeah. What is it, three uh, years in a row now? Yeah. It's gone down, and particularly for white men. For white men, particularly for less educated white men. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a term for it coined by Princeton economists Ann Case and Angus Deaton. You know, they pointed this out several years ago that they, they call them deaths of despair. Yeah. And yeah. to the extent that life expectancy stopped rising, it's not because of like the healthcare system stopped working or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the flu shot didn't the, stop working. You know, uh, you know, the spike in mortality comes from deaths related to alcohol poisoning, uh, drug issues, and suicide. Suicide. That's a particularly big problem here in Montana. I know that you do work with the Rural Institute, and that must that much touch touch your world. Yeah, uh, you know all of these things do. Uh, so you know, so that's certainly a concern, right? The fact that you know, yeah, people are telling us they're less happy. We're seeing deaths from yeah, deaths of despair. Yeah, right? yeah. And then you know, other mental health statistics are kind of in line with this, right? So. Youth suicide ideation has doubled. Yeah. Uh, uh, various other forms of mental health indicators are also kind of all shifting in the wrong direction, particularly mm-hmm. amongst adolescents. Um, and so that kind of leads us to go. But actual suicide is on the rise. Actual suicide is on the rise, yes. Okay. Um, and I can't remember. And, exactly you know, and I was thinking, I, I, we've had this conversation before, but, you know, and I took economics and undergrad and graduate school i mean you sort of are taught that that basic macroeconomic cycle that you know lower skilled jobs get dis- disrupted by technology but workers are retrained and or not necessarily retrained but but higher skilled jobs are created and so on net te- technological disruption is a positive and it drives to better jobs with, with higher pay and a more educated workforce and all these things and and so that's Evidence suggests that that's being disrupted more lately, right? I don't know if that's that opioid effect or some of these addiction problems or despair problems, but we've talked about this before. Yeah, okay. So, all right. So, we there seems to be something going on that is keeping – we look at well-being, Yeah. right? And so economists have done this. They've tried to say, well, look, people complain about looking at GDP per capita as a measure of – overall well-being sure well that's not it's easy to get lost in output per person mm-hmm. um so let's you know so a few years ago some economists came up with an alternative where they said well let's look at income consumption leisure time life expectancy and inequality okay right so we'll put these things together and see if you know we can so, I mean, the trend in all those things except for inequality mm-hmm. have actually been good right so relative to 20 years ago so in 2015, the paper was written, looking back 20 years. Um, and they said, look, taking all these things into account, well-being 
at least as economists like to think about it, right, had improved by 60%. Wow, over 20 years. Over 20 years. Yeah. And I, you know, if I reflect on my life in 1995, and I try and like, again, I've obviously gotten older, but like if I try and just say, look, what would, what would you know, college student me in 1995, or what was a 43-year-old person in 1995, and I'm like, uh, yeah, things are better. There's lots of stuff that's better. Yeah. Right? But still, something isn't aligning here. Mm-hmm. Right? So we need to start thinking about, oh, what's what's the well-being production function, right? That's broader than this material. You know, that's what the economist tends to focus on, right? So it's consumption, leisure, time, uh, health. Those are all very tangible kind of things that yeah. we can look at. Things we can measure. The things we can measure, things that we can look at. And so obviously those things aren't... If we just looked at that, we'd say, look... Yeah, they're not is, telling the story. They're not telling us a story right. that aligns with it. We've got to look somewhere else. And yeah. you brought up economics. Right? Sure. And so um, so maybe it's distributional, right? Yeah, explain that. Um, okay, well, we're looking at average, Yep. right? Not everybody is at the average, mm-hmm. right? And we know that inequality has increased by a ton. And so maybe it's just that the allocation of the well-being in society. Right. So like the same reasons why that GDP per capita measure is totally flawed. It's flawed, right? And so... I shouldn't say totally flawed. It has weaknesses. It has weaknesses, yes. It has has areas where you want to look in other ways. Correct. And so maybe the material... So maybe it is an actual material story. It's just the distribution of material as opposed to the average level. Okay. And there's... You know, look, there's probably some evidence for that, right? Look, if we look at, there's a survey called the Survey of Household Economic Dynamics that the Federal Reserve does, and it's been up for about five years now. And they ask questions like, how satisfied you are you with your financial situation? Mm. If, uh, you, if, you, if you suddenly had a, a, an unexpected $400 expense, could you pay it? How would you pay it? Yeah, and isn't and, something like 40% of people say that they cannot incur a, an unexpected $400 expense? That is the exact percentage. 40% yeah. of people cannot uh, handle an unexpected $400 expense. Mm-hmm. Right, so you say, okay, well, there's lots of people who are kind of living kind of- At the limit. Financially at the margin, right? So there's an absolute level to it. But you actually brought up just job loss or job you know transition. Yeah, these right? shocks. Yeah. The shocks. And- a dynamic economy is a good thing, right? That is, I'm an economist. I will, I still believe that a dynamic economy is a good thing. Um, but I think there's lots of, there's a large literature that looks at the cost of job loss, right? So if yeah. you're a person who loses their job, what happens to you? And, it, you know, it kind of dribbles out and it's kind of easy to kind of lose the narrative. But I was asked recently for a project to, assemble that into something. Okay. Uh, and it left me kind of pretty depressed. Hmm. Um, so the literature on job loss, you know, because we'll, we don't want to look at somebody who gets fired or gets let go because they're the bad worker. Yeah, yeah. Right? So what we want to do to try and isolate the effect of literally just losing your job is we try and find people who lose their job through no fault of their own. Mm-hmm. The whole plant closed. Right. Right. You know. Or the volcano hit. We got to get to that Iceland study <laughs> you told me about. Yeah, that's a different one. But yeah, we'll get there. Okay. Uh, but, you know, so, yeah, we want to find something where it was kind of like, this This isn't your fault. Right. right. Factory shut down. The factory shut down. And so then we want to follow you and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, um, 
particularly in kind of the manufacturing blue collar sector where you can get a good job, right? So whatever you're a coal miner or a logger or working an auto plant, uh, you know, working an auto plant, mm -hmm. you know, those were good jobs, mm -hmm. right? The problem with the dynamic economy that we have is if you lose that good job, there isn't a ton of good jobs then for you to turn to. Certainly not in the same neighborhood. It's not in the same neighborhood, not in the same. And so what happens is so when we look at people who lose their job, particularly people who lose their job through these large exogenous job events, even 20 years after uh, the event, their earnings are 10 to 15 percent below what we would have expected them to remain wow. on. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I sort of laid out there what I learned in whatever college economics. Was that based on theoretical work then and that th these findings are empirical work? Is that kind of well, difference? So, or? No. So, I mean, look, I, a dynamic economy is a good thing. Okay. Right? Uh, overall, yeah, you take stuff that isn't very productive and you bring in, you know, there's winners and losers is right, the point, right? Right, so right. So there are people who are winning from these transitions. And there might be more winners than losers, there are, but there, there are losers. There are losers, yeah. right? And so, yeah, so you lose several hundred thousand dollars of expected lifetime income. Yeah. Right? That's basically the finding. Mm -hmm. You then, that's just your income piece. Your health gets worse. Yeah. You're more likely to get divorced. Your kids perform worse in school and their long-term outcomes. You know, so it kind of adds compounds. up into these compounds into, again, from a, from a relatively good high-wage blue-collar job that goes away and there isn't something to then me to turn to. You know, so you also add in moving costs. Yep. Uh, that's easily a million-dollar loss, right? Or at least several hundred thousand in kind of expected – present value loss it's huge you know yeah. so yeah so you know so that so you have and, and layer that on top maybe in a world where well maybe these people aren't living longer but people are living longer in general and they have to work a longer life because they can't afford to live as many years in retirement yeah well and that's the other thing right uh even if you don't lose your job again we need to let's i've kind of dove into yeah yeah we, we gotta should, we gotta stick stick we, on the thread we should kind of talk about broadly there's three categories of workers okay right or there's lots of different ways to categorize workers but one simple classification that leads to a small number of groups is we have service workers mm -hmm. we have you know production workers and we have creative workers right so a lot of the people who are in the can't handle $400 expense world those are your low wage service workers mm -hmm. who are living paycheck to paycheck and have a whole, whole host of like so, unpredictable hours and yeah when you, you say know, service you mean food service well, yeah and, i mean it's it's broader category than that but yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. that's the that's the easiest way to think but about those it are the retail types of jobs. you know these are hourly workers who are you know yeah lower skilled hourly workers for the most part sure. right and then you have production workers and that's, i'm going to use that as shorthand for kind of traditional manufacturing blue collar okay. you know jobs and then creative workers are kind of your they're us, right? They're, you know, people who go off and sit in offices and think stuff up, right? So Financial services. Um, yeah, advertising. Advertising. Uh, banking. Writing, banking, finance, sure. uh, architects and engineers, yep. you know, software developers, blah, blah, blah. Right? So um, each group 
they have things that they complain about that may be then the thread that we want to pull on to understand what's going wrong. Okay. Right? So what we were just focusing on, well, you know, so what, kind of what's gone on in the production space is there's been a lot of disruption, right? And there's been disruption due to tr- technology, and there's been disruption due to trade, right? Right. Uh, and so that's where they, you know, there's still lots of value in all of those sectors. They're not, they haven't gone away. They're not going away. They're just not growing. Mm-hmm. And they're, they, you know, as they shrink as a share of the economy, when there's a shock there, it's now harder for somebody to easily transition to the factory down the street. Right, there's fewer options. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, now I've got to train, you know, and then when I go to find whatever else I'm going to find, yeah, you maybe were making $70,000 a year in your mining job or your, you know, logging job or your factory job with good benefits. Yep. And now you're transitioning into a forty, fifty thousand $50,000 a year, you know, truck driver or health service worker or something like that, well, you know, that's the gap, right? Or maybe you're moving into that service category that's less secure. Exactly, right? Yep. Yeah. So, the, you know, so there's, you know, so there's, so, you know, in each category we can find, we can, there's a thread that we can pull on in yep. terms of, uh, well, here's the, here's the actual tangible thing that maybe isn't obviously going right, right. with these people's lives. But I think what we ultimately want to try and get back to is, is that as far as we go, or is there something actually underlying all of it that, or at least more than each one individually, that is kind of more fundamental to the way the economy and society are operating? Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not sure I know what that is, but I'm currently interested in power. A new angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Rose Bairdenwalk. I am a master's student at the university, and I just won some drum coffee, and this is a new angle. And you are the lucky winner of the drum coffee X, a new angle giveaway? Yes. Yeah. So how'd you find out about the contest? Um, I am usually very active on Instagram, there and so uh, after finding about the, out about the podcast, uh, I just kind of browsed through my feed and saw that you guys were doing a giveaway and have a really good track record with winning giveaways, so I thought I would check it, it out. And you won another on your first try. <laughs> yeah. Nice job. Uh, so you just sort of finished up your thesis in environmental studies here. I did. Congratulations. Thank What's next? You. Um, so I'm going to do graduation, but I am working with a consulting company right now, um, and we work with tribal nations in mitigating health issues. Uh, I also have a fellowship with the 500 Women Scientists, and that'll be two years. So I hope I can do those two projects in tandem. Wow. Well, that's a ton of stuff. It's exciting. Congratulations on graduating. Thank you. And thanks so much for listening to the pod and uh, helping us out with the uh, the giveaway. Yeah. Thanks for bringing me uh, in here. Hopefully you like coffee. I love coffee. And I guarantee that hat will look a lot better on you than it did on me. So it's nice to see it go to a happy home. Oh, good to know. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rose. Thank you. A lot of this, I think, has, you know, we don't talk enough about power in terms of just how we think about things. Yeah, and how do you define power in this context? Like, what, That's a good question. Yeah. Um, so again, as an economist, we start with market power. That's where I kind of start, right? As you know, when I first uh, 
out of graduate school, I actually started working on antitrust cases, right? Okay. Uh, so, you know, so you said, okay, well, there's market power and there's market power issues here. Mm-hmm. But there's more than just – so, that you know, and that, that, that is certainly a thread that I think comes across a lot of the stuff is companies have more power. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about unions. We can talk about um, concentration in industry. Um, well, in government as well, right? So you exactly. basically have, you know, you, within at least the labor market space, right, you have the employer and how much power they have. You have the employee and do they have any power? And if so, how? And frequently that's through some sort of union. Sure. Or it's because the government gave them power. Yep. Right? Yep. You know, the government sets a minimum wage or the government says that the employer must do X, mm-hmm. provide health insurance or whatever it is, right? So, that you know, power is being shared amongst these kind of three centers. But, you know, the, I think a lot of what's happened has shifted power away from worker and into other camps. Sure. And um, I think that that manifests itself in a variety of different ways. Um, but that may not be all there is to it, right? Yeah, and that's I mean, probably different across categories. I would assume that these imbalances in power uh, affect service workers a little bit more than they affect production workers a little bit more than they affect um, intellectual workers. Yeah. And, is and that the right category? Ca- creative. Uh, creative is workers, word, I okay. guess, that be, people frequently describe it. But yeah. we're all – in creative in creative work, um, the – they're, they're obvious. Yes, you typically have more power, right? Although as you you're know, as you're uh, saying that out there, I'm thinking, well, the gig economy is yeah. people wanting to work in creative, but the, the the way the market's structured now is that they're working on contract or they're working a variety of roles in a variety of creative ways with less security, and that's a whole nother issue. I mean, it's, how sustainable is the gig economy? And then, yeah, big big questions there. Well, yeah. So, I mean, the, the issue in the creative space or one of the issues in the creative space is it can consume you. Yeah. Right? Uh, and because you're trying to succeed in an area where lots of people want to succeed, mm-hmm. uh, but they're, they're kind of, you know, it, it tends to the creative economy tends to skew towards superstars. You yeah. Know, you know, so there's a whole literature in economics on superstar effects. Okay. And, you know, there, I use the term golden ticket, right? So when I was in graduate school, I had a student. And the student, it was one of my favorite students, but uh, he told me very early on that he stops going to class after midterms. Hmm. And because, you know, so I was a graduate student at Harvard and – what he explained to me is, is, look, I'm trying to become the head of this particular organization. He's like, if I become the head of that organization. Had he chosen that organization? Yeah, yeah. He was working his oh, okay. way through it, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's this, this thing called the Harvard Student Agencies. It's like this $10 million a year company that yeah. students run at Harvard. He's like, look, if I become the president of that, I'll get whatever job I want. I'm set. Right? And he said, look, there's like six jobs in organizations on campus that if you get, the track record is... Punch it. So he's like, it's a golden ticket. Yep. Right. So I was like, ah, oh, golden ticket. Right. And so, but a lot of creative spaces are golden tickets. Right. Yeah. The challenge with that is when there's only some, think of the 100 meter dash. Right. There's only one Olympic gold medalist. There's only one fastest person in, in the world. The, in, you know, there's only one Usain Bolt. Right. But the people who lose to Usain Bolt. Yeah. 
extremely fast. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. The difference between them and Usain Bolt is, you know, it's tiny. Right. right? But you're still the fastest loser. You're the fastest loser. Right? And so what happens in, I think, creative space is uh, we all have two dimensions that we're operating on, particularly in that space. We have an ability or skill uh-huh. and we have effort. Uh-huh. Right? And I can get so far on how much skill I have. But you can compensate if I if I'm more skilled than you, but if you work harder than me, right? There's some level at which you might beat me. Yeah, and you might say there's other dimensions too. Yeah, just, I'm, just, I'm I'm using a very simple model here right, to basically right. try and get at the notion that what we see sometimes, you know, the complaint in the creative space is burnout. Right. Right. Is that I every you know it's always on. You know, the bo- email, blah, 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 because yeah. I have to be better than everybody else if I want to get one of the handful of quote unquote. Sure. And tickets. that flexibility that everybody seeks, the evidence suggests it takes a toll too, because not only you're already on, but it's not as predictable. Your schedule is more up in the air and that, that has costs in the long run. Yeah. I mean, so the, all, you know, again, all of these areas have to do with. You know, there's a thread in each sure. of them. And this is the one in, in the creative space is, you know, as you know, I, I focus on what I call effort constraints, but the literature, you know, motivation constraints and attention constraints. There's a whole bunch of things that we can kind of talk about. And the concern in my, it, for me in the creative space is that a lot of times I think we we burn through people. We, we keep putting them so that they're putting all of this time and effort into their creative work. Yep. But then they're not socialize and you know they're 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 not meeting their needs right so if you think about again a welfare so a well-being production function mm-hmm. right i won't say we know what goes into that uh cuz there's a bunch of different schools of thought and they kind of disagree but broadly we know that there's a material component right you need money mm-hmm. right that is it does help to have money uh but you also need purpose and meaning and companionship companionship and all of these things. And, uh, you know, I'm a social person, right? So like, uh, you know, in graduate school, my dissertation was literally titled Essays on the Economics of Social Interaction, right? So, you know, this is kind of my little hobby horse intellectually. Sure. So that's my, the one that I focus on in my own research is, okay, how do we get people, what are the effects of interacting with humans? And, you know, my simple tidbit to people based on actual evidence and data is if you want to increase your happiness and purpose and meaning, just go interact with other humans. Yeah. Uh, I love that frame. <laughs> interact with other humans. Yes. Just go socialize. Don't, <laughs> don't put it off, you know, cause it's very easy to be, I'm too tired. Uh, you know, there's a lot of bailing at the last minute, you know, again, I'm too tired. I'm too busy. Or yeah. There's also this, and we know this psychologically, there's mood stickiness, Yep. right? When everything rationally would suggest, yes, I should go out to that party but I've had this really day, a bad day, and I'm in this bad mood, and, and it takes this. Your your bad mood is sticky. It's hard to change it, even though you know that going to a party will change my bad mood into a good mood. Hopefully, anyway. Well, there's risk. Uh, there is risk, but but less risk than. I mean, there's uncertainty. There's less risk of being in a bad mood if you go to that party than if you stay in your bad mood. Right? That's that's certainly true. But yeah, but you know, so yeah. There, but if we go through that well-being production function, right? right you know, there's. For a low-wage worker who can't handle a $400 expense, yeah, maybe it is the material component that's failing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also things about, like, uh, schedules mm-hmm. and, you know, just kind of power dynamics that play out there that are also, I think, meaningful. 
for the production worker, um, if you still have your job, then there's the, the fear that you're going to lose it. Um, but there's also just, you know, if you've been hammered down by the economy, you're in this kind of cycle of, I, I thought my life was going to be here and yeah. now it's here. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. And that's one of the key pieces of the well-being function, production function, right, is expectation, right? You know, at least some people will argue that suffering is the gap between expectation and reality, right? right? And I put joy in that same category, right? And so, you know, a lot of life is about, well, what are your expectations and how are those being set? Well, and that's uh, actually, should we, how does, how does this sort of, how do these expectation effects play in when you're talking about these different categories of workers? I mean, part of me feels like expectations of a better life are sometimes a luxury that creative workers have that service workers might not. Everybody is entitled and can dream of a better life, Right. But if you're a service worker and you're working three jobs to make ends meet and you're, you can't incur that $400 expense, like worrying about your leisure time is not – like you don't have that luxury. Does that make sense? Like is life objectively harder for the service worker? That's a, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, should know something about evidence on that, but I'm not sure I do. I, I uh, think that's that that sort of feeds into this. So I, trope. I mean, I, w- I would I would I would I wouldn't say that there is. Uh, everybody dreams, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the scale of the dream and the type of the dream may differ. Um, you know, and for at least some low wage workers, it depends on where you are in your life. Right? Yeah. If I'm young, I'm still dreaming of what my future might have because sure. I'm, I'm here because this is the side gig until I get what I want. Mm-hmm. If you're middle-aged, uh, the dream might be for your kids, right? I'm doing this yeah. because I'm trying yeah. to get my kids somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then everybody plays lottery. So, uh, you know, there's still, there's still some amount of dreaming going on. Um, so I don't know. I, I, you know, I wouldn't, so I wouldn't say that there, you know, it, people have different expectations, yeah. right? In fact, one of the things that I think about a lot as a parent is the main thing I'm actually doing as a parent is setting my kids' expectations. Yeah, right? makes sense. Uh, and so I have to set them in a realm, you know, part of what you're manipulating and the variables you're manipulating as a parent is trying to get them to have expectations that aren't, oh, life is awful, Right. But aren't just like, oh, life is going to always be somewhere way up high because at some point it may fail to achieve mm-hmm. that. They right? have to have resilience. You know, and they have and to be resilient. Work and, and, you know, and, so, and so, yeah. So, it, And I was I, asking I, if, well be, if, if expectations sort of differ systematically across these categories. I'm, well, th- I think this is part of where I think empirically we struggle to kind of unravel this something's wrong notion, right, is uh, – we see the outcome, right? Mm-hmm. And there's vague questions like, oh, are you better off than your parents? Yeah. Right? But I, there are some surveys that have questions about what did you expect or what are you, so I won't say there's no data on this. Yeah. yeah. But like, uh, you know, I think part of what we struggle with from a measurement perspective is, yeah, well, what what did you actually expect to happen? And how, you know, because, if that's the case, if 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 it's if it really you know to the extent that whatever malaise that we're worried about is 
uh, the result of an expectations gap. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's there's two parts to that. Is it that we set our expectations wrong or did we get reality wrong, right? Right, right. You know, was it execution or expectation yeah, that was you wrong? know, and so if, it's, if we got our expectations wrong, okay, that's fine. We just need to work on, and this is generational, but like yeah. resetting people's expectations uh, over the course of time so that like when they get older, they're like, oh yeah, life although, is going to be this hard and I'm okay with that. Although maybe, I mean, that's... Mm-hmm. That's also a symptom of what we're talking about here. People's expectations of future quality of life for themselves and for their children are changing. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and this is where I think some of the concern about social media comes in, right? Absolutely. Is, uh, the challenge with social media is that it is a curated perspective of people's lives, mm-hmm. right? It is not, there's not a lot of reality, in social media, right? Like, you know, I don't think I've ever seen anybody post on Facebook like their kid vomiting or whatever it is, right? Life is awesome. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I see a lot of vacation. I see a lot of events. Uh, you know, I see a lot of the fun stuff of yeah, life. Yeah. Um, and so the concern is that, you know, if you don't keep that in your mind, that I'm seeing a the selection, mm-hmm. that it is possible that you could start to have a warped sense of what your life is supposed to be. Right. Um, now, again, that is a theory. I'm not sure we have actual data that fully support that yet. Well, and there's, I mean, that there's other theories about, you know, the rising depression and suicide, particularly in, in the adolescence is attributable. Adolescent girls. Adolescent girls is attributed to, attributable to some of these social media-mediated pressures. The problem is, like, this may well very be an epidemic that, we don't have the data to declare at the moment, but by the time we have those data, it's too late. I mean, it's... Yeah, that's, sort of, yay! Uplifting podcast. Yeah, there you today. go. There uh, you go. Um, yeah. Uh, no, but yeah, that's absolutely right. Like, it's... Uh, I think there's lots of concern about it. Yeah. Um, but not enough evidence that people are really acting on those concerns. It's kind of like, oh, this doesn't feel right, but... Oh, well. Well, there, there are those anecdotes about, you know, Silicon Valley executives sort of not allowing phones in their house and, and all sorts of things. And yeah, you, know, you wonder how much of that is true. Um, but if it is, that seems to be a significant red flag to me. That it would, yes, that would be a significant red flag, I guess. I mean, I feel it in the classroom. I, I've sort of been thinking about this a lot this, this semester in particular because I, um, you know, I'm teaching this large lecture class for the first time. In, well, I say lecture class. I try not to make it about lecture, but it's a large class with 130 students. And and when I first started teaching, I was pretty adamant, no screens, like put away your laptops, put away your phones. And then I started figuring, well, students are going to be on their screens regardless. You know, I can't compete with it, so might as well embrace it. And I had this sort of, hey, you need to be the author of your own learning kind of spiel. And 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 then. I've sort of realized in me and in observing others how addictive these devices are. And so I've kind of gone back to being adamant, no screens. Yeah. Because oh. I can't compete with it. Nobody can compete with it. They're engineered to be addictive, and we've got to shut them down in class. I'll send you the papers that you can put in your syllabus. 
Please do. People have tested it. Yeah. It is bad for learning, not just for you, also for your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there's a negative externalities case to why you shouldn't let somebody else be looking over your shoulder at your screen. That is um, going to be convincing for my uh, students. There yeah. are negative externalities yeah. associated with you having screen time in you class. Know, and, you know, but yeah, so uh, I've seen that on econ Twitter now. People are like, here's the paper. You can edit your syllabus. Okay. Uh, it's been tested. Nice. Um, so. Well, I drew us off topic there. Um, <laughs> yeah. We got to land the ship, Bryce. I don't, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It's uh, hey, the world has some things that are going wrong with it. Well, you know, <laughs> I did feel like the purpose of this conversation to get us started was to open up a lot of doors. Yes. And I don't know if if in our future efforts we will close any of them, but uh, the opening of the doors is to me the the, the important part is we're going to start learning and sharing some of that learning with 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 our listeners. Yeah. Um. I did have a question for you in the sense that, you know, you, as an economist, you're kind of looking at broad data sets, empirical evidence, et cetera. But you feel this in yourself, right? Or, or do you? <sighs> well, uh, so uh, in my own personal life, not terribly right okay. my life is good I, yeah. I don't have a ton to complain about mm-hmm. right i live here in missoula uh you know i can walk out my back door and be in the mountains and in the trees and uh i'm you know i have a whole family and i have extended family and i you know i have i have very little to complain about yeah um where it where i feel it is I guess in some amount of empathy uh, based on both what I observe in the world, but also what I see in the data that I work with, right? Uh, You know, I mean, I do a lot of research on people with disabilities Mm -hmm. and uh, we just did a study where we had a qualitative component. Um, and, you know, I mean, just the stories that people are telling yeah. you. Yeah, were you collecting like, the data, like doing the interviews? I, no, I mean, I got to read the summaries of it. I got to read the transcript of okay. the interviews, but I didn't actually go participate in them. But, like, you know, I mean, I'm getting the stories from those who were mm-hmm. as well. And, you know, you just kind of, I can, you know, you sense it, right? You see, you know, or you see in the data, oh, this isn't right, right? Why is this happening or why is that happening? Or, you know, like I said, I did a research project on, you know, the overall consequences of job loss, putting all of it together. And yeah. it was like, you know, for the group that I was looking at, uh, on average, it was a million dollar loss. Wow. Like, you know, over the course of your life. I mean, in terms of shorter life, you know, that's a big component of it. You know, as you lose life, you know, a couple of years of life expectancy, uh, you know, all this income, having to move, disrupting your family. Um, and I was like, wow, that's, I knew it was big, but I hadn't, I hadn't quantified it. Yeah. Right? And once you quantify it, you go, oh, we got to do a better job with dynamism. Yeah. Right? To kind of, you know, it's not just trade assistance or some tiny little, you know, underfunded government program that says, well, here, we'll try and help you find some other job when there isn't another job that's actually comparable to what you're trying to look for. And so... You know, that's where the the sense comes from me. I just kind of, I mean, I'm sensing it. You know, you're seeing it in the data. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's not, it's not. You know, I personally, I don't have a ton to complain about, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm concerned that I'm not the rule. I'm the exception. Yeah. I mean, I guess I reflect on that question in similar ways. 
probably less data driven in the sense that I'm not working with the sorts of data sets you are on a daily basis. But, you know, I feel it just observing political polarization in our media culture. And I think that's a topic we'll talk about in a future episode. Um, looking at students coming into college now and thinking of the debt that they're going to take on on average and the number of years it takes for them to pay off and, and you know, does the value proposition of, of higher education pencil in ways it used to be. And I know you have some strong thoughts on that that we'll come to perhaps in our next episode because our, our, our second in this series will air right after episodes with Scott Latham, who's a future of work expert, and Michael Punk, who works at AWS and is um, thinking about ways that technology will disrupt education. Um, yeah, and so I think about it kind of on that on on that level, and it, it does feel as though something is wrong. Um, but at the same time, life is great. Like, I go out the door... Kids are happy. It's a great town, great place to raise a family. There's a lot of opportunity. It's just hard to reconcile those two. And, 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 you know, and, that's, and that's, the, that's the tension that we started with. So right. if you want to talk about landing the plane, I think this is where we do it, right? Mm-hmm. Is, look, there is a lot going right. But when we look at trends in subjective well-being, happiness, life expectancy, in particular deaths of despair... Uh, we look at things like polarization and the erosion of trust and norms and social capital across communities and across neighborhoods. Um, something clearly isn't, you know, or the, you know, rise in loneliness and yeah. you know, and all sorts, you know, and all these mental health indicators are telling us that, in spite of the fact that there are things going right, and there are lots of people for whom everything, you know, lots of things are going right now. I mean, life is not never everything is going right. But, sure, you know, whatever. Um, but we we have to start trying to figure it out. And, you know, I mean, if we want to just talk about all the doors we've opened, right? Well, we think that there's there are some still people who have actual material issues, right? You know, we're, we haven't kind of satisfied that first level of need mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, they're kind of able to put a roof over their head. Right, safety on the table, needs, right? the hierarchy, you know, all that. All right. But then, you know, you also have people who are dealing with risk and, you know, concern about their own jobs, but also their community and their neighborhood. Um, and then, you know, even amongst the quote unquote successful, uh, there is a concern about a giant treadmill that will burn you out and rob you of a whole bunch of things that are supposed to be part of, again, that well-being production function, mm-hmm. right? As If more and more of my effort and attention gets shifted into trying to compete for whatever golden ticket is available to me, that means that there's less left over for my family and for meaningful social interaction and for hobbies and for a whole bunch of other things that produce general welfare and meaning. And again, I don't, we haven't got into kind of, well, who's going well and, you know, what all these kinds of things. But in each of those three broad groups of people, at least in, in the workforce, I mean, we have to kind of deal with people outside the workforce as well. Um, there's something of real concern. And, you know, I think part of what we're going to try and do over the however long we do this until people tell us to shut up <laughs> uh, is to try and, you know, we'll, we'll try and zero in on some of those. Okay. Well, let's talk about material and, you know, inequality and some of the things that come along with that. Sure. Why is that bad? And how does that then affect, you know, some of these outcomes that we're observing mm-hmm. that we're concerned about? Mm-hmm. 
Well, Bryce, I look forward to that investigation, these continued dialogues. And, uh, you know, this might be too lofty an objective, but I'd, I'd love to get the audience involved. I'd love, you know, the, the, the two or three of you that are still listening <laughs> out there. Let us know uh, what you'd like to talk about. Let us know if, if, if this broad area of inquiry resonates and uh, what you're curious about and, and how we can uh, – we can address those questions. So, Bryce, thanks for coming in, and I look forward to uh, seeing you more regularly. Yeah, this will be good. Thanks, Justin. Okay, hopefully that conversation resonated with you. I think we're on to something here, and I hope you'll stick with the series. Bryce will be back every month for as long as he is willing. And if you've got questions or topics you'd like us to cover, please let us know. You can reach me at justin.angle at umontana.edu. Okay, coming up next week, we have number nine in the Sea Change series, my conversation with Kat Cowley. Kat is currently working on her Master's of Public Administration here at the University of Montana and doing some amazing work on food security and safety on our campus. Tune in to learn more about Kat next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that a new angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at a new angle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag a new angle when you do. Thanks a lot and see you next time.